Welcome to Syntalk. The Syntalkers around the table today discuss the view from below. We'll attempt to take a first-person worm's eye view of the world as opposed to a bird's eye view. We'll dip into ideas from literature, anthropology, sociology, philosophy, ethnography, and social theory to understand what it is like to be socially, politically, geographically, economically, and psychologically below the hegemon. Who sees what from below and how? What is it like to be a beggar? And why have we criminalized begging? How can we and should we retrieve the voice and view from below? And what's the future of this understanding? We're very pleased and privileged to have three Sin Talkers with us here today. Harsh Mandar is a human rights worker, writer, columnist and teacher. He has worked with people affected by communal violence, hunger and homelessness. He lives in Delhi. Professor Shalini Randeria, who is a professor of social anthropology and has worked on anthropology of globalization of the state and the law. And Professor Kumkum Singari, who is a teacher and a writer and has written extensively on contemporary gender issues communal violence, cinema, television, art practices, and literature. So Shalini, maybe we set the ball rolling with you. Um, what does it mean to be below? What is below? What is that place? Well, um, the notion of below, of course, means that we are thinking in terms of a topography. Yeah. So it's below something. Mm. And usually in a lot of the social science debates on the view from below, it's about below the state. So mm -hmm. we have an imaginary center, which is the state, and then we are thinking of people sections of the population, entities, institutions, which are below that level. And then above is what we usually then think of in terms of the transnational or the international. So there is an imagined nation state in the center. But in other contexts um, of thinking about below, we can think of um, people, uh, communities who are marginal, marginalized, who are um, seen as um, grassroots communities, to use another uh, expression. Grassroots, yeah, sure. As an expression for thinking about below. Mm -hmm. um, we can think in terms of uh, locations. Mm -hmm. So these could be uh, places, sites, which are thought of as local, mm -hmm. as opposed to an imagined global mm -hmm. or national. So this is when you're thinking in terms of scale, when mm -hmm. you're thinking of... But is the global a place when you say local, one kind of... Well, I don't that. even know what the local is as a place. I think <laughs> a lot of the claims which are being made in the name of the local, mm -hmm. be they uh, negative claims mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, as a derogatory definition of something which is just local, mm -hmm. uh, or even positively valorizing the local mm -hmm. as opposed to whatever it's being opposed to, I think a lot of the claims are also in the names of uh, the local, where uh, it's what we are talking about is basically practices of localization rather than, or claim making in the name of the local rather than any place which is local, because actually, if you think, all places are local. Yeah, yeah. But some yeah. get the status of the global. Mm. And when we say below, we, we kind of tend to imply the absolute bottom, don't we? 
You can think in terms of uh, the bottom, um, mm-hmm. in terms of the bottom of society. Then you're mm-hmm. thinking in terms of uh, the poor or uh, the marginalized or, um, uh, yes. So in a sense, you're thinking in, in two directions, right? You're thinking one, uh, when you talk of the below, you're thinking one in terms of a perspective. Yeah. Uh, and you're thinking in terms of relationality. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about situating um, either the knowledge associated with um, the place or people or um, the institutions you're thinking of, both in terms of a relation and a perspective. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you use the word relationality because is it a continuum all the way from the top to the below or whatever, whichever topography one thinks of like what is it like to be at the absolute bottom and their relation with the one immediately above them how is that distinct from the relationship between if you know what I mean well this will depend in terms of what kinds of theory uh, you're using to conceptualize uh, the below so in the Marxist perspective you will have a very different uh, idea of a class antagonism Mm -hmm. as uh, uh, defining um the relationship Mm -hmm. uh, between uh, the poor and the elite. In a Gramscian one, you will have uh, one where you're thinking in terms of subalterns Mm -hmm. and uh, elites. But uh, So you can think in terms of a continuum. You can think in terms of ruptures and Mm -hmm. breaks and disjunctures. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, one can uh, also think uh, in terms of... But even that is a relation. There is a relationality. It can be a relationship of antagonism. Um, So whatever way you're thinking of it, it's in terms of a relationship to something which you are thinking of as the center or the above or the hegemon or uh, the privileged. So let's say in this Gramscian Marxist kind of framework, how many layers would there be? Kumkum. What do you say to that? What happens if you're thinking kum-kum? in terms of subaltern and the elite? Is it is it just these two subaltern and the elite? Is it the bourgeois and the proletariat? Like what happens? I think Marxist discourse has gone much further than that. You know, it may have started out like, you know, a two class bourgeoisie versus the proletariat, but I don't think that. Uh, contemporary Marxist theory actually now is restricted to that imagination. Mm -hmm. And that imagination actually broke down very long ago, you know, with, for instance, the Maoist Mm. uh, moments, because, you know, peasants had never figured in the classic Marxist framework Mm -hmm. as a revolutionary class. So, and, and I have a sense that now, you know, one looks at class very carefully because it's not just a means of the control of production, mm-hmm. which is what, you know, classic Marxist theory has held, but now it's also uh, a control of information. And, um, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's also very deeply gendered. We have access to um, so such a different understanding now of how men and women uh, who might be married to each other and living in the same household actually have different class positions yeah. in terms of access to resources. Yeah. And we've seen, for instance, the enormous drop in economic status of women who get divorced. Mm. They suddenly actually belong to another class or women who are abandoned or whatever. You know, mm. for whatever reason. Mm. So I don't think one sees class now in mechanistic terms as fixed positions, mm-hmm. but actually something which is in formation, in antagonism to other classes. And in what sense do you use the word information? In, in, in the sense, so when you say someone divorces and they separate out, so is it like a signal to society? In, in what no, sense I meant control of information is uh, related to the fact that we are now living in a very different phase of capitalism from the one that Marx lived in. Yeah. And with post, post-Fordist production now, you can actually control manufacture, sale, distribution through information technology Mm. without physical presence. Mm. So that, in fact, there is an invisibilization Mm. of the hegemons Mm. or the people who are actually in control. Mm. You you may be in a locality, Mm. and uh, that locality may be being shaped by faraway actors whom you cannot see. Mm. 
So what's the hegemon now? Who's the hegemon now? That is, I think, precisely the question that one has to now really think very hard about. Mm. Because some of, you know, you know, the individualization, you know, of this bad capitalist figure, as it were, which yeah. you've seen through 1940s cinema, it's actually now seems very, um, um, you know, much easier to yeah. deal with. Yeah. You know, because you can... It's more tangible. More tangible, more mm. personal. Mm. You know? mm. Whereas the kinds of social changes that are now coming in, for which we have no explanation mm. locally, mm. because they are not even necessarily only coming from the state, but what Shalini has pointed out, supranational, you know, institutions, uh, forces, uh, corporations, you know, which have no country. Mm. In in often in 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 tax terms and other things. So in some sense, actually defining the above is a very different kind of problem now. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the problem which is being addressed by you know new Marxist theory. Mm-hmm. For instance, financial derivatives. Mm. I read a marvelous essay recently by Frederick Jameson, who points out that. In the financial derivative, different populations, different types of labor, different countries, different currencies, you know, he has a long list, all suddenly come together in yeah. this in this event yeah. and are briefly in relationship with each other and then dissolve and it moves on to the next thing. Yeah. So so in some sense, you know, it's not just the, the thing that identity, it, mm. but also the stability of the hegemon. That mm. we want to think about now, you know, in the sense that with with new configurations, configurations happening all the time, like like look at Greece, you know, belongs to yesterday's hegemonic EU. Yeah. <laughs> Today is actually the pauper in the EU and insecuritized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. That, and and we are looking here at a na- at you know well not exactly a nation in the sense of ours but still of a national entity within the EU. And, and yet, if you ask who, you know, we, we used to think very much uh, in terms of Greece as a homogenous nation state and then think of its place as above or below. Mm. Uh, and what you now see is the total fragmentation. So you have uh, uh, parts of the Greek population uh, who are rendered uh, totally destitute by uh, the kinds of policies being uh, forced on them by the uh, ECB and the uh, IMF and the uh, EU and others who are uh, multi-billionaires uh, who are not even taxed by the Greek state. So so basically, um, even if we are thinking in terms of uh, the state as something uh, which is in the center from the perspective of populations whom we it's see. It's not homogeneous below that. It's not homogeneous below that. Yeah. So it's a, it's yeah. a very much more uh, fragmented entity uh, where it becomes because power has got not only invisibilized as Kumkum very rightly says Mm -hmm. but also it's dispersed Mm -hmm. uh, in such a way that some of it is horizontally dispersed some of it has been vertically dispersed some of it has been dispersed through decentralization even downwards if you want to stay in this kind of an image of above below verticality etc but the dispersal of power makes it so difficult to exactly find the locus of um, where power is being exercised and where hegemony resides. Interesting. I think there's some very interesting ideas there. Yeah. I I, I really felt that, you know, in this conversation, taking it right to the very bottom and and really... What is the very bottom? What is the very bottom? You know, I... in, 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 In the way I've just the nature of my work, uh, uh, I, I think I, I feel in, in some way very privileged that I've spent a lot, I spend a lot of my work time and some of my personal time with people who are really at the very bottom, uh, you know, people who, uh, you know. So let's sort of bring some images in, say, uh, a mother who, uh, a Musahar Dalit woman who's, who, who tells me that the most difficult lesson of all that she has to teach her child is the lesson of how to sleep hungry. Mm. Uh, you know, homeless people who uh, who uh, actually, you know, all bonds 
with the world have 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 broken down. A, a blind uh, elderly widow. Do you think bond with the, the world has broken down? Yeah, an elderly widow who's uh, uh, got no one to take care of her. Somebody begging on the streets, etc. You know, let me. I've tried to understand destitution. Uh, you know, the very bottom, and something that I feel quite profoundly. Uh, is is the observation I've seen is that destitution is not the same thing as extreme poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, all destitute people are extremely poor, but not all extremely poor people are destitute. Mm-hmm. Very destitution is is something more. I think it it is a, a an almost complete level of social isolation, abandonment, abandonment. In fact. A kind of, you know, Barbara Harris has used this word. I I took her actually to uh, meet leprosy patients and homeless people, and these are two sets of destitute people I work with. And she used the word social expulsion. Uh-huh. They're not even excluded. They're not isolated. They're expelled. Uh, you're expelled. It's an active uh, act. In what it's sense? It's an it? active. It's a very active act, and and mm. and that's where I, 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 you know, what are the other features of destitution? Mm. I also see an extraordinary. Uh, degree of of social uh, stigma is a, is 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 a is a soft word. It's it's a much more sense of uh, social contempt. You know it's that hostile. Whole, whole, uh, uh, yeah, the whole idea of the uh, Ill, you know the undeserving poor uh, who are you know in the situation. So we look down on people uh, in their suffering. Uh, then there's uh, how does one know uh, who's undeserving? No, that, and I don't think anyone is undeserving, and I think that there is an intrinsic dignity, the recognition uh, that a person is in a situation that I could have been in that situation if life, if if I hadn't won the ovarian lottery of where I was born in the first place, and others. Yeah. So, but but just let me, uh, you know, continue. I I also see a third feature is extreme social hostility. You know, the state is not just neglectful of its most vulnerable citizens; it is actively at war with them. You know, so demolish, push away uh, uh, the, the the kind of uh, state violence that is used against its most vulnerable. To citizens. what end, Harsh? The irrationality. There is there is no end to it. There is an end because we somehow see them as there has to be because resources it, are expended. Yeah. No, the. Uh, I, I, there's a sense that this is a set of people, and in fact, even the Marxist paradigm, I think, you know, did not accommodate this set of people. The 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 the, the lumpen, uh, you know, classified as lumpen uh, proletariat uh, 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 yeah. in the nineteenth See, because century. because you see, somebody mm. who's so we see the uh, the contradiction between the people who own and who operate the mode of production what yeah. about the people who are excluded from the mode of production because of their caste because of their gender because of uh, you know and so and, and and then this translates into a sense of very low self esteem as so another character that your own esteem of yourself breaks down and finally and this is something that i'm actually working on uh, on uh, on working on a on a paper that's trying to and and the last is the the breakdown of hope that your own belief that you can change the circumstances. So all those people that I talked about are people who live. Uh, they they exiled from many things, but they exiled from from dignity, uh, from a sense of equal citizenship. Uh, but uh, but most of all from the from hope itself that life can change. So I, I so I, I I mean I just I don't know what the three of you feel, but I I think that that when we're really talking about the view from below it it is that view that i thought we might like to reflect on a little bit and when does that happen harsh so you spoke about this mujahar woman yeah. and even if this child learns how to sleep hungry yeah. uh, presumably when you're very young you haven't given up hope yeah, uh, so. yeah, yeah. but you know if you live a life i mean uh, you know this this just to take that you know they said that there are many days in our life when there isn't a single piece of grain in, in in the house and the whole family actually sets out looking for pieces of grain and they find it firstly she said most importantly as undigested pieces of grain in the dung of cattle and i thought that was an exaggeration but when you read dalit autobiographies you actually talk about people who've lived on primarily on and the second is 
because they're musahars, so they uh, this is uh, they steal it from the rats. from the field rats. Mm. And the third is farmers, uh, you know, thre- uh, harvest and they leave. Uh, you know, some pieces on the ground and they, they actually collect that. The whole family might get a, a fistful of grain. You, 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 you. So Harsh, where do the Musahars come from? Like, I the, mean, how, how, how come it's going one generation after another? See, the Musahars are, are probably, I, the two or three communities who are the most destitute as a community. I mean, sure. uh, destitution is normally an individual characteristic, sometimes mm. a family. So a leprosy patient uh, mm. uh, and, and, uh, and, and so on. Uh, person who's very disabled but I find that there's some communities which have got disabled uh, which have got destituted very interesting. one of them is mm. Mus- the Musahas one is the uh, Saharia tribal communities these mm. are where uh, you know I'm a commissioner of the Supreme Court on, on the right to food in that capacity I've investigated starvation deaths these are the two communities I see you know people actually yeah, you know, desperate starvation, living with starvation, and 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 and, and the, the Musahars are, are people who actually uh, even the Dalits would would look down on them. They have no land. They have they own nothing. They don't even own the house sites that they that they that they live on, and uh, they're treated with with enormous contempt by society traditionally. So so these are these are people who. And, and but the how did this come to be? It's such. It's, it's, his, it's, it's historically. It's, we are a very unequal society. We uh, we we really legitimized uh, inequality. We've given it social sanction, religious and cultural sanction. And these are the people who represent. And in fact, I was reading Amitabha Ghosh's, uh, you know, uh, Sea of Poppies, and there the story actually centers around um, uh, this Musahar woman herself. And, you know, her, his description, it, it was poignant to me because the description that he gave two centuries ago was exactly what I'd seen with these women who were having this conversation with me. I mean, life has, uh, life is still, uh, you know, uh, frozen uh, with them. There was this Musahar woman who was, you know, uh, which, uh, she she developed a, a great deal of, of of you know uh, 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 trust with me. So at some point she whispered to me and she said, you know, I actually own a bicycle, and you know where I've kept it. And she took me to a house and she'd broken up the bicycle into pieces and camouflaged it in different parts of her house. And she was telling me this big secret that she actually owned a bicycle. Her hus- her son her husband had died in some illness. Her son had had migrated to the city and she never heard back from him. Mm. You know, she was just living somehow. It's that kind, I'm, and, and I don't think we recognize... What is their view of the world, Harsh? How do they look at the world? That's what I... That I, I enormous degree of, of, of dignity, I do find, resilience, uh, a huge amount of self, uh, you know, mutual self-help, but also, at, at some level, a resignation to... Uh, you know that life will not change. That, so when you teach your child to sleep hungry, saying the rest of your life this is going to be something that is an intrinsic part of your life, I think reflects. I mean, when they, she was speaking, I was thinking of my own daughter and what would have life looked like to me if I had to teach her that that the most important lesson of your life is how to sleep hungry. Yeah. But you know what you're saying, Harsh. I mean, it's very important because you know. Otherwise, when one wants to think about, you know, what this below consists of, mm. especially people of our class, it's like us and them. Yeah. yeah. And the below is somewhere below the crust and we are above ground. And, you know, it yeah. has that, it has a hidden character. Mm. It's people whose voices that might you might come by, whose stories you might hear. But somehow there is no giving of, dignity to a full corporeal person yeah. as much human as you and I right so and and I think one of the one of the things that has always I've always felt is that there's always somebody below you I mean because of the infinite hierarchies we practice in terms of caste and region and gender. religion and gender there's always somebody that you can, can look find. down upon. You can look down upon. So it's like a kind of, 
what I once called a relayed subalternity. You know, yeah. you can practice part on someone else when it's being practiced. There'll be someone on right you. at the bottom. There. But exactly. So what you're pointing at <laughs> is that one. is the destitution beneath which one cannot go. That's why I think it's really very important, and why that point, which I hesitate to call the bottom, I'm somehow resisting the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the topography, yeah, yeah. No? the topography is the problem, For, because well, I think why is that? We need the, to, the most dispossessed, I would say, perhaps the we most We need to kind of explore it more, yeah. but is it that it strikes you as being unchanging because there's nothing below that? I, you know, I mean, that's really important when yeah, one thinks yeah, yeah. of social change. You're Dalits really can group together yeah, and make a claim. So what is, why is that claim not possible there? See, like the leprosy patient. In fact, my first encounter was with the leprosy patient. And I, I you know, I was a, a young officer in a district. I've never met a set of, set, set of people so exiled from hope. See, your own family casts you away. Uh, because of in, an illness which terrifies you. Uh, and there's no reason today medically why you should get disabled. But uh, but because you're so frightened, uh, you, you, you don't go for treatment, you lose your thing. And people hate you. People won't give you work. Uh, so you have to beg and they hate you for begging. Uh, they won't allow you any opportunities. So I just tried there, uh, you know, in the first, this place called Barwani, I said, would you... Would you like to give up begging and and start a life? And I, it's a memory I'll always carry because the entire skyline was, you know, people put up their hands and there were fists which were, you know, those broken yeah. fists. People want dignity, but but life doesn't give you that opportunity. And if they did, they all gave up begging, and it's been thirty years now. And 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 I've seen wow. uh, the, the the possibility of dignity. But you know what I was saying, and I think I think I'll, I'll stop now because I've spoken more than I should. But but you know when you see a, a homeless, mentally ill woman, you know her her, her hair matted, covered with ex, her excreta, sitting on a uh, waste heap, uh, almost naked. Children are throwing stones at her, hair matted, etc. Mind gone. I think you know what. One of the most wonderful things that I've learned is that actually, if you look at her and think about it a little more, you recognize that intrinsically, she has no less dignity than my own mother. You know, if my mother had been born in a different place and life had treated her in a different way, that is where she'd be, just as much as she'd have been where my mother is if life had treated her differently. And I think it it is that recognition of equal intrinsic humanness that we've somehow lost in this civilizational journey of ours. And that is why destitution... Why is, do you say we've lost it? Has it ever been there? Like, I, mean, I, I think we're losing it even more than we had in the past. I mean, and that's a controversial statement to say. But, you know, we had, we had an idea like the langar. Uh, the Sufis uh, had started this idea of the langar. The langar, sure. the langar was not just a food charity. It was that not only that you collectively provided food to the hungry, but you must serve it to them with respect and dignity. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I think that was a beautiful idea. Like a, like he's an honored guest. You sit him down. You sit with that person. I think it's one of the most. It's a wonderful civilizational idea. Guru Nanak took it up. Today in the Gurdwaras, in, 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 in our work with the homeless, we found that destitute people are not allowed into Gurdwaras. Yeah, and, and, and I've, I've written about it, I've spoken about it, etc. And they, you know, they say that you don't understand these people, they, they're dirty, they, uh, you know, they, 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 they smoke, they drink, they take drugs, uh, and they will defile the temple. And I said, were they different in Guru Nanak's time? And if he didn't think that they would defile the temple, what has happened to us now in Republican democracy? I think it is a civilizational idea that was always contested. But mm-hmm. movements like the Sufi and Bhakti movements, uh, uh, you know, and Ambedkar and all of these challenged it. But I think we are, we are, our legitimization of inequality has only grown uh, in, 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 in contemporary yeah. times. And, and oh, I, in fact, I want to come back to this one point that you were making, that this is not about just poverty. Yeah. Uh, and I agree with you. It's not just the extreme poverty. The destitution has uh, the social aspect of not having uh, 
kinship or neighborhood bonds. So I think especially in a society like ours, but our society in that sense is quite representative of, uh, uh, you know, African or Latin American societies too, where it's primarily our kinship bonds of which, whatever which kinds which carry us through um, uh, life, uh, especially because in the absence of uh, provision by um, any um, institutional um, uh, structures which would uh, support us. So th that is a very important element of the... Uh, when that breaks the, down. When that breaks down, uh, there is a real um, a crisis of the kind that you are describing for the individual. Of self-worth. Of self-worth, of being able to provide for yourself in sort of very everyday material terms. But what I also want to pick up on is this idea which... I think, I mean, so yes, uh, the, the uh, person struck by leprosy um, is, if you like, a question of fate. Uh, of course, yeah. it's also a question of uh, disease control and sure. public health, etc., but there is a fate. I think where we really um, uh, also uh, should be thinking about uh, the kind of destitution that we are producing daily as a society. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, one where, you know, once somebody is struck by leprosy, I have to be able to care for that person and uh, make sure that medicine is provided. On the other hand, what we are doing with a very active um, uh, politics of dispossession is we are creating this destitution. Um, what do you have in mind, Shalini? I have in mind the kinds of uh, people uh, that uh, I have been working with. Um, in the 70s, uh, 80s, I was working in North Gujarat with Dalit communities where uh, they have all been rendered destitute by the building of a dam. Mm. Now, you cannot give them any compensation because they never owned land. They were landless mm. laborers. So mm. the landlords got a little bit of compensation, definitely mm. not adequate, but they got something. Mm. But the families who were as landless laborers dependent on that labor for, uh, you know, uh, their daily survival were all rendered totally uh, destitute. Of course, they then formed cooperative societies that tried to get out of it through all kinds of collective mechanisms, which did not work for all kinds of reasons which we needn't go into here sure. but that then the kinds of uh, communities I have been working with in the last uh, five years and that is communities rendered destitute by the um, uh, special economic zones which we are setting up mm. or through urban infrastructure development in a city like Bombay. Uh, so uh, what you uh, are producing actively as a state and a society is dispossession. And I think that is the kind of dispossession where I think there is certainly the, the indifference towards that as the cost for so-called progress development is, I think, something which we are just taking in our stride as part of a middle-class ambition uh, to catch up uh, with what we think is uh, the glories of Western modernity. And I think that is something which is, um, so for the person who is experiencing it, um, perhaps it's uh, an equally difficult fate. Yeah. But as a society, the one is something which uh, is, there is a political will behind it, whereas in the other case of um, uh, leprosy, there is none. So I think uh, here, you know, we really um, uh, should think about the active production of... Uh, Russian reproduction also by state policies where the state is withdrawing from its responsibilities for welfare. And the, and the reimagination of the state, I mean... Uh, when I joined the IAS in 1980, at least the theory of government was that government's primary duty was to its poor and to its weak, uh, wiping every tear from every eye, as Gandhiji said. The practice may have deviated. But today, the imagination, and the, uh, you know, Gujarat is, is, is in, in India with the recent elections, Gujarat is is the model for what it has done for big industries. So, so it's as if 
your primary client uh, as, as government has moved from 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 the poor and the weak and the destitute to uh, to the super rich business uh, in the hope that that is going to Im- improve society but in that process that's what justifies you know the uh, displacement and the special economic zones but also uh, you know uh, what greece has also witnessed I and mean, that's another part of the greek story is also when the state withdraws uh, in the name of austerity and fiscal prudence uh, from its responsibilities for healthcare and education and so on and that produces its own uh, kinds of 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 dispossession what do you feel you yeah, no no i am been really on the same page with maharsh and chalini because i'm thinking that you know when you're saying that we have to look at our responsibility and i think there are three things coming out to me immediately one is you know what marx actually called the dialectic of um, the unity of prosperity and misery so that in effect you know one has to exist with the other yes and i think that the more we think about prosperity and growth in these very this very shallow notion of growth and very uh, limited notion because that growth will only really you know benefit a few as we know quite well and this is true from all the way from brazil to you know to us uh, in these past 50 years uh so so there is that and i think what is remarkable now is a complacency which allows people to only look at themselves and what is above actually looking below used to be a social message and a responsibility as it was it, it was said that you know if you're unhappy and miserable look at who has less than you don't look at who has more than you you know so when you're saying something has changed i think harsh that's the second thing i want to say i think what is changing is the ability to identify you know because i public mean public compassion what i really would or, or identification i mean if if you say you know that uh, this could have been me yeah, but yeah. for an accident of birth yeah. you're identifying em- aren't em- you empathy, empathy empathy leading empathy i think the empathy. breakdown of public empathy in a but, sense but but i would go further and i would say we have had politics of identification you remember gandhi i mean his whatever his failings in terms of analyzing caste we do know that he constantly said identify at the very bottom think of the poor as the weakest and, and that's where your identification should go and recently in fact this it's you know i was thinking of this this french philosopher etienne balibar who is actually asking in sitting in europe that let's identify with that at the bottom which in this case would turn out to be a third world migrant woman you know laborer without adequate papers so in some sense that you know he's trying to actually restore the ability to identify with the bottom so whether one you know if one doesn't look upon it as charity or philanthropy but actually looks upon it as you know creating a new topography you know that's where i was thinking shalini if you know below immediately implies that but if one actually does doesn't if one identifies you lose the above below Right, right, right. You're looking yeah, yeah. horizontally. That's wonderful, actually. That's what no? you see. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we need an, a new imaginary of this topography because, as long as it's below, we can hide from it. You know, there's this lovely story. I don't know if you've read it uh, by Ursula Le Guin about a utopian city called Omelas, and she places it in a imaginary space. imagine the city imagine this it's everything is perfect you know health happiness wealth uh, beauty everything but in that city in one basement one there's one child is one child and that one child is like the destitutes you're describing and worse that child has never seen daylight never been outside the basement has no place even for his excrement is occasionally given a crust of bread so he's near starvation he has no language because there's nobody to speak to and once in a while somebody you know will come and look at him and then you know it's a horrifying sight but there seems to be some unspoken contract for the founding of that 
lovely utopian city, which means that the child must be there for the happiness of all the others. So as a result, some people in Omelas accept it. It might hurt them, but they accept it. Some of them quietly get up in the middle of the night and leave the city and walk away. But nobody protests. Nobody says, let's change this. Let's take the risk of changing it and see what will happen. So what I'm saying is that actually that topography itself... But, but, I, think, but I think it's a fantastic... They walk away from the utopia? Yeah. Mm. yeah. But, but it's a fantastic metaphor of what we've become as a society. I mean, I think that if I was born a hundred years from now, I would say what most uh, most characterizes our world is our capacity to look at enormous suffering and and injustice around us and to turn our faces without away. turning our hair, yeah, without without any sense of outrage, without uh, you know uh, this business about our capacity to just look away uh, is really something that. That, that strikes me a lot. And, uh, you know, I just was looking when you were speaking this, what Martin Luther King had said, never, never be afraid to do what is right. Society's punishments uh, are a small are small compared to the wounds we inflict on our souls when we look away. And I think it is that, uh, you know, the, the diminishing of ourselves uh, by our, uh, our, uh, our consent. You know, poverty and suffering around us is actually violence by our, with our consent and our complicity. And the recognition, you know, like, like you know, the growth model that you're talking about, what kind, we have, uh, Jan Bremen calls, I mean, he's used one really evocative description for the majority of our, uh, the, the recent SCCC said uh, that, that 56% of rural households are completely landless, dependent only on manual work. It's more than they were at independence. Uh, and so these are people whom Jan Bremen calls the, the hunters and gatherers of work. Any kind of work in any part of the country on any conditions, and they'll go because they have to survive. So you have, you know, we have, we've created a world where, where you have... The, third largest number of dollar billionaires in the world and you have the hunters and gatherers of work and they seem to be you know uh, the, the production and the reproduction of this is because one uh, you know this requires that and i think <laughs> i don't know uh, it, it's it's uh, we, we have we have to have a new paradigm of understanding the world and i think we have to rebuild uh, a framework of of uh, of ethics because to me what is worrying about today's world is not just not the facts of our inequality but the normative framework in which we feel that this inequality is at least inevitable but actually legitimate and that I am I have the money uh, 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 when, when the food bill was being discussed uh, and I was on television these debates every night I remember this industrialist, uh, she was really angry. At some point, she turned to me and, and said, uh, wh what's wrong with it? I've made my money uh, uh, because I worked hard. Uh, I've done nothing to harm the economy. Why should I be taxed to feed the poor? And I had to say, I'm sorry, the poor work uh, much harder. Hard. Uh, they've done even less to harm the economy. And in a good society, people of wealth should be happy to share some of it so that life is more bearable for people who are not responsible for the situation that they find themselves in. But I think this is where, uh, I think there are two um, uh, things which struck me while you were describing this. When we're thinking in the Indian context, we are thinking very much of... Uh, other Indians, and we think, uh, in a sense, the limits of the solidarity should at least have been at the level of the nation state. Even that we are not getting. Living in Europe, what we are seeing is both kinds of solidarity have decreased. Both the solidarity within the nation state, because you just do not have the public support for redistribution policies which you used to have for the welfare state in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And on the other hand, what you also had in the 60s and 70s was solidarity with social movements in Asia, in Latin America, from uh, uh, Europe. And today, when you see the movement of refugees into Europe, and this is the Balibar um, 
uh, question of uh, how, what are the limits of solidarity? Uh, if I look down, whom am I including mm. into the universe of those with whom I am willing to share? Mm. Uh, and then the question is, uh, and I think it's such a falsely posed question, but the question that is being posed at the moment, the political question is, so we extend the limits of solidarity to those who are citizens, and which is uh, uh, those who already are in the box of the nation state, yeah. and we exclude those who are coming from outside. So uh, this is then very much a question of, uh, mm. you know, uh, in what terms are we, how universal, how large are we going to think about the unit um, towards whom and the people? What should it encompass when we're thinking in terms of solidarity? Mm. So what are the conditions in which solidarity survives and thrives? It's expensive. It must be expensive. Why wouldn't the nation state do it otherwise? That solidarity is expensive? Well, this is, of course, a question of whether we want to think it in, think of it in terms of a moral compass or, or only in terms. terms of an instrumental economic compass. Right. And, uh, I mean, I I'm not even sure if the economics are right in sure. this when the argument is that uh, it's really not worth our while economically mm -hmm. to be um, to extend solidarity to the poor. I I think and this you is need even the reserve army of of of, yeah. of cheap labor. I think so this is even false economics. Uh, but the question is, suppose it were correct economics. Mm -hmm. Suppose it really is too expensive. Mm -hmm. to extend solidarity to the poor, would there still not be a moral argument? So it's a moral argument. Yeah. But what has happened is at the moment, that's one of the uh, uh, side effects we are seeing of the hegemony of a neoliberal model is that the only public justifications for anything are in terms Has to of be economics. economics. Yeah. yeah. And therefore, the moral arguments are politically just they have so little traction. And I think this is where it becomes really worrying, as uh, Harsh is uh, pointing out. And that is why I, I was making this point about the, the active politics of dispossession, because I have the feeling that probably towards the leper you will still be able to get some show of not yourself going and doing something but you're still afraid to touch the leper but at least you will be able to get some charity quote sure, unquote sure. but I think the active politics of dispossession that we are all uh, witnessing and are party to and we are seeing some protest of course but not enough uh, is something where you are not going to get the solidarity Chomsky actually said, uh, uh, sorry, I, uh, Chomsky said that social protection is ultimately the idea that we should take care of each other. And I think that's what we're talking about when we talk about solidarity. But he goes on to say that we are living in times where this is considered an extremely dangerous and subversive idea. Mm. This idea that we should take care of each other. Mm. An idea that needs to be crushed at all costs. It's a, it's a moment where what I describe as solidarity or public compassion has become a, an extremely radical and dangerous idea. <laughs> and, and I think that that's the crisis of our time. Mm -hmm. No, no, I, I, I think that, you know, you're very right. And I want to actually say a little more about the economics versus the moral. You know, we, we are... What is, what is capital's role in all this? That's the point. Mm. You see, if you look at it, what is the economics of you know, neoliberal capitalism, mm. which makes it difficult for us to care for each other. Mm. Or it seems Besides. as if we shouldn't. I mean, one of the things I found very curious shouldn't, in, in the US, for instance, mm. is you needn't that... Needn't is bad enough, but shouldn't, it's actually become... Well, greed is good. Shouldn't. Greed shouldn't. is good. So. It's like people, you know, coming from India, where, like you, one had an idea of the public good. So if you paid taxes, then you knew this was to build infrastructure, which everybody would use. It's quite st astonishing that in the U.S., this is not the general view of taxes. <laughs> the general view of taxes is this is my money. So it's got to be used in the way I say it should be used. And I'm saying it should not go to help the migrant, the destitute, the poor Afro-American, the single mother, etc. Right. So the anti-welfareism actually is very interestingly tied to a particular sense of ownership of the, of the taxes that you have paid, 
you know, on your income. So if, if one is, you know, going to say there's an economic argument, the economic argument then, if you boil it down to the lowest equation, would be some people should have most of the world's goods and others should have hardly all. That is the economy. Not that there is not enough money to go around. There is food is being thrown into the ocean. Yeah. It's going waste. Yeah. You know, uh, people have more clothes and other things than they can actually wear. Yeah. So actually, this is an economy which is creating huge amounts of excess and waste and surplus on the one hand. And on the other hand, saying we can't afford it. Yeah. So in effect, there is no economic argument. The only economic argument here is allow the corporations to make the most that they can. And that this making the most will depend on precisely these armies of cheap labor, of maintaining near destitution. When you maintain near destitution, I'm not now talking of absolute destitution, the, the, the you drive the falling, wages down. Your, your danger of falling. And in. you drive the wages yeah, down. Yeah. You know, the wages are really driven down because... Um, you know, if 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 you can, you know, be in a position where you have to share grain with, you know, rats and fellow animals, then even the smallest wage a day will, you know, seem like a, 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 a you know, relatively better thing to have. I mean, ironically, it almost seems as if the very bottom is those whom even capital doesn't want to exploit anymore. <laughs> yes, that is true of countries also. Yes. But no, no, I mean, it's seriously. That's, that's very but, but, interesting. But can I just say, you know, just the idea of solidarity. I, was, I read somewhere recently, in Sweden, they have a social compact where people who are in the working age group today say it is their voluntary duty to provide pensions to all old people who live today. You know, it is, and they say it is our debt to that earlier generation. I think it's it's these kinds of ideas which r run so counter to, you know, to to a, a world where we are told that that greed is good and that everything has to be weighed in terms of profit and loss and, and utilitarianism. That that I think that we need to. Uh, so I I I think it is really an ethical uh, revolution of ideas. Uh, that we need to... Yeah, so this is the German constitution talks about the social responsibility of capital, right? So uh, it uh, it's a very, very uh, strong idea which uh, was part of the rebuilding of the German state. The whole um, health insurance system as a public system survives on that idea that all the unemployed have to be uh, given health insurance to be provided by contributions from those who are in employment, mm. um, et cetera, et cetera. But what you see is little by little the whittling down of all of these, uh, the pension provisions, the health insurance provisions, which were all of the... And then, as I said, the question is when it comes to um, uh, admitting uh, migrants and refugees, this becomes the major question. Who belongs? Who belongs? Who What's belongs? the box? Who belongs and who can be um, excluded? What's the future, Shalini? 400 is, years out, 500 years out? Bleak. <laughs> the future is bleak, I think. I, I think so. You think so? Yeah, yeah I do think so. I, I think we might be turning around. I just, 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 just keep hoping. You <laughs> keep hoping. Well, uh, why do you say it's bleak? Well, I think it's bleak in the sense that I think those of us who um, uh, really are, uh, you know, um, optimistic about um, doing something with the political work uh, that we do, uh, I think we do it in spite of uh, the bleakness. You have to have hope, otherwise it... it, it I, I don't know. I have the feeling it's bleak because I don't see um, in the face of 
all the misery and the crises which have been produced uh, by uh, the last 20 years of um, uh, the kind of neoliberal capitalism and financialization, etc., that we have seen, I do not see any strong political and social movements emerging which are global. And I think unless we have uh, that, we are not going to be able to uh, bring about a social transformation. But, but I also feel that, you know, because things are, are getting worse, there are really very few options left. Either states will become more and more repressive and authoritarian and continue to whittle down social welfare. Along as, with populism and religious nationalism. Right, and, yes, and jingoism and mm-hmm. militarization. And xenophobia, which we are seeing everywhere. But equally, we are also seeing that this whole idea about, you know, the view from, that view, in a sense, you know, is the appearance of the people. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a division between below and above. It's all the same people, right? And I have a feeling that, you know, unlimited repressions of the sort we are describing, you know, may not prove to be acceptable because let's remember that this so-called below is the largest number of people in the world. They are the majority, they are not the minority. So there is some hope, I think, in, 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 in thinking that there might be an end to tolerance on their part. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's, what you're describing, Harsh, is a situation of extreme tolerance inside that destitution. And the hope maybe lies in the end of that tolerance too. But also of, of the survival of humanity within it. You know, uh, you know, Steinbeck had somewhere said that if you if you really need and uh, uh, in, in desperate conditions, look for the poorest person. He or she is most likely to help you compared to anyone else. And that's really been my experience. And you know, the source of hope is really in 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 the in the robustness of our humanity, which survives in these most difficult circumstances. So. You know, in 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 Delhi, uh, homeless people in winter have to hire blankets, and they're entrepreneurs who sell it for thirty rupees a night. And people actually have to make a choice between having their last meal and and hiring blankets. So one night, I suddenly noticed that actually the the poor, oldest among them always had you know the the, the sick, the aged, uh, all all had blankets. And I asked them how 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 come? Because they would have died. They said, but we knew that know that they would have died. And so they have a compact, the, the homeless people, that they first come together at night, they pool money for the uh, for the aged and so on, they hire blankets for them. And then they decide if they can do it for themselves or not. And they do it as a matter of fact thing. So I think social solidarity does survive in, in, in extraordinary ways uh, among people of dispossession. And I think that's probably why perhaps... I don't know romantically, but I still feel there's hope because I think that, you know, sometimes when you see, if you see a forest which is completely bare, a land which is completely barren, you think there's no root soil under uh, uh, under it. All you do is to have to create a boundary wall and you'll find trees start coming up. I think that public compassion is still somewhere there in a land which looks barren. And maybe we have to, we we have to create social movements and... And 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 a kind of politi- new political discourse, where it'll find. I really hope you're right. <laughs> come come, you're hopeful. Yeah, well, I I just who will be the subaltern of two thousand five hundred AD? Uh, you know that might take us to a completely different mm. topic of discussion, mm. because I think the way our ecologies are going. Mm. I am not looking to see the same forms of life 500 years hence. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, you know, that's another part of our discourse which needs to change radically. Mm. Because if we think of what is happening to what was hitherto the commons, which is water, Mm. air, Mm. um, food, we're heading towards probably eating plastics and having unbiodegradable bodies. And what that might do to our minds is another question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. That, that's another imagination. <laughs> I think that's... Yeah. 
Interesting. Thank you so much to all of you for making it. We look forward to having you soon again. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you.